Well, on this Family Sunday, it's been such a delight to have our student ministry worship team lead us. And we also have the privilege this morning of hearing from one of our elders, Brian Davis. Some of you may be familiar with him as the announcement guy, but he can also preach. And I'm so glad you're here this Sunday to hear this message. So, Brian. Thank you, Grant. Well, good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Thank you. It makes me feel a little bit better. I was like, it's going to be a long morning if we can't do better than that. So, yeah, I think Grant thought, well, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Let's throw the announcement guy up there. Let him fight the tryptophan coma, right? The turkey leftovers that maybe are in your ovens right now, just waiting for you to have them a little bit later. So if I put anybody to sleep, I'll just blame it on the turkey. It can't be my fault, right? Sounds like a good setup to me. Well, my name is Brian Davis. I am one of the elders here, and my wife Erin and I, we have been coming to fellowship for 20 years. I know that if you're watching online or in person, it might be hard to believe I look so youthful and young, but it has been 20 years that we've been here. Such a good church. I have been able to preach here a couple of times before. I love opening God's word. Uh, We value it and treat it very highly, and I'm going to do the best job I can opening it for you this morning. Well, what would you do, though, if I told you first and foremost that I spend many hours a day thinking about money? I think about it, I strategize with it, I daydream about it, I plan with it. Would you be at all concerned? Well, without proper context, you probably should be, but I'm a financial advisor, a certified financial planner, so I'm a paid professional. That makes it okay, right? Not necessarily, it really doesn't actually, but I do work very hard to use godly principles that God has written in his word to abide by, to, to strategize with, to plan with, to keep me grounded and those that I work with grounded because God has given us a lot in his word on finances. You know, I'm sure you've heard it said that there's more in the Bible on money and stewardship than there is heaven or hell. We've heard it so many times that we just say it and it glosses over us, but think about that. There is more in God's word about money and stewardship and finances than heaven or hell. Those are pretty serious topics with eternal consequences, right? And yet it's true. So by some accounting, there is over 2,350 verses in the Bible that deal with stewardship and finances. Different ways of categorizing it. You might come to a slightly different number, but you get the picture. God actually does say a lot. He cares a lot about this idea of stewardship and how we manage the finances that he has entrusted us with. Money obviously is a part of everyday life, right? We use it all day throughout the day. We can do a lot of good things with it, a lot of necessary things, But we can also do lots of disastrous things with lots of consequences and bad things if we don't apply his truth well. So I just want to say right at the beginning that what we're talking about today applies to you whether you have $1,000 in the bank or a million-dollar stock portfolio. It doesn't matter. It's not about the amount. What we're talking about are just principles of the heart. God goes for the heart. So this really applies to all of us. And this is a great time to be covering these verses. I mean, who doesn't want to have a message on money right as we go into the Christmas season, right? What sets up a Christmas season like talking about money? Well, it's interesting timing that two days after Black Friday, which was this past Friday right after Thanksgiving, right? We come to a verse that says you can't serve both God and money. I think it's interesting because there's probably been a lot of serving money uh, over the past couple days. So I did a little bit of research on what is Thanksgiving weekend, what does Black Friday look like from a money standpoint? Well, first, the average American spends $335 on Thanksgiving weekend, and 75% of that goes towards gifts. In 2019, last year, consumers in the U.S. spent $7.4 billion on Black Friday alone. 
$7.4 billion. Black Friday is the best day of the year traditionally to buy TV. So if you're going to buy TV and you didn't, you should probably wait. Be a good steward. Wait till next year. Get it on Black Friday next year. Black Friday is also the best day of the year to be a plumber. Ooh, it's their busiest day of the year. Let's, let's move on. I don't know why that would apply. Um, Black Friday, that term, apparently originated and became more prominent in Philadelphia in the early 60s. The Philadelphia Police Department named the, the Friday after Thanksgiving Black Friday because then people would flood into the city for the annual Army-Navy game. So a lot more people, a lot more foot traffic, more shoplifting, more pollution, more fights broke out. And so that chaotic day was just started to be termed Black Friday. One newspaper tried to rename it Big Friday, but that didn't really stick. Although our family, we noticed over the weekend, a major U.S. retailer was trying to call it Big Friday again. But Black Friday wasn't officially named the busiest shopping day of the year until 2001 when it overtook the Saturday just before Christmas. So I guess that's progress, right? People stopped procrastinating until the Saturday before Christmas and just backed it up to right after Thanksgiving. So that's a little bit of progress. But then, in 2011, Walmart broke the tradition of opening early for Black Friday when they opened up Thanksgiving evening. Come on, Walmart, Thanksgiving evening. But my guess is they just did that to try to stave off their competition. Amazon, because last year, in 2019, Amazon took 57% of all Black Friday online shopping, so over half of it. So, with all that... Any question as to why the Bible contains countless warnings about our relationship with money? It's everywhere. Tis the season. So this brings us to the first truth that I want to highlight today. As we saw in the preceding verses that Grant covered last week, just by our nature and by our design and our fallen nature, in many cases, we will treasure something. We are going to treasure something. We are wired to value and treasure something. And Jesus gives us a warning about that. He warns us about against, you know, valuing earthly things and instead instructs us to value eternal things, godly things. We are to store up treasure in heaven. We talked about that last week. Well, in the verses we're going to cover today, the world presents us an appealing master for us to love and to know and to serve. And it's not God. Based on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, our hearts are just naturally drawn to earthly treasures, to worldly treasures, not to eternal godly treasures. And so we saw last week, Jesus warns us not to let our hearts be captured by earthly things. He doesn't say, you know, just a little piece of advice. You might want to think about not valuing things on earth. No, he says, do not Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But instead, you know, store up treasures in heaven. And he even gives us a why. Why? Well, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus warns us not to let our hearts be captured and destroyed by temporal, harmful, earthly, worldly things. And as I said earlier, I'm going to say it one more time, this applies to all of us. Jesus didn't qualify this by saying, hey, you rich people, don't store treasures on earth. That was just a broad statement given to everybody. Well, today's verse adds further weight to the dangers of focusing on uh, earthly and worldly riches. Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here, pretty simple statement, pretty simple formula that's laid out for us. When it comes to God and money, Jesus says we will pick one over the other. 
We're going to. We will hate and despise one of them, he says, and we will love and be devoted to one of them. So that's at least by comparison, because you might think, well, I mean, I love Jesus, but I mean, I'm kind of fond of money. I mean, does that mean that if I'm fond and kind of like money that I hate Jesus? Well, at least by comparison, and here's why, because these are two things, right? They can't be both the number one thing in your life. And, and Jesus says, you will love and be devoted to one, and you'll hate and despise the other. Only one can occupy the top spot in your life. Only one can be kind of on the throne of your life, on the throne of your heart. You can't truly serve both God and money. And as I think about this admonition, I was just reminded to, when this was first presented to me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, before I went to Baylor, I went to church once my whole life. And I got converted, got saved at Baylor as a sophomore in college. And a year or so later, um, I had a guy who was about five or six years older come alongside and offer to meet with me. And he tricked me into discipleship. Didn't even know what that was, but found out later, hey, you were discipling me. And as I was a senior about to graduate, I had a fine, graduating with a finance degree. I just knew I, I had a finance degree. I wanted to graduate, get a job, and start doing whatever you do with jobs, make money, and pay bills. I wasn't really thinking about greater things that could be accomplished. But this guy took me to lunch, and he said, Ryan, you're going to have a finance degree. You're going to be in the world of finance around a lot of people with money. Both people, you're managing money. You're talking about money. You have people who are going to idolize money, who are going to want to serve money. There's another way, right? You can use your God-given abilities and, and what you have studied, and you can take that and you can actually do it God's way. So he gave, me, he gave me an idea and a vision, and he pointed out some people in town here in Waco who were doing that. And he said, you can be one of those guys. You don't have to go down and just be all about the world of money and finance. You can honor God with your career that is rooted in finance. And so that story is a great reminder to me, one, of the importance of discipleship. You know, somebody coming alongside somebody a few years younger and helping them out and pointing them to God's word and pointing them the right way just in life as well. And it also emphasizes the, emphasizes the importance of applying it. When somebody speaks truth to your life, let it impact you. Let it kind of ruminate and think about it. I obviously still remember that, you know, oh, a couple decades later. So I talk with people about these ideas and these issues of prioritization quite a bit. Again, as a, as a career, I'm a financial advisor, and so I'm talking to people a lot about their priorities and what does their plan look like. And so oftentimes people talk about, well, obviously I want to retire someday. That doesn't mean retire and go to the beach necessarily. It just means I want to retire, love to put my kids through college, love to pay off the house early. If something happens to me and I don't get to, to live and work as long as I plan to, I want to take care of my spouse. So these are all good things, but they can't all be a number one priority, right? Years are finite, certain amount of dollars. Like you have to focus in and say, okay, if push comes to shove, what am I going to value the highest? What is my first goal? And all these other ones can follow, but what is number one? And then what am I going to rank second and third? And so you have to prioritize. And this statement by Jesus works the same way. We are only capable of serving one master. One is going to be the top spot. So who's it going to be? Is it going to be God or is it going to be money? Only one can occupy the top spot in your heart. So if we're going to lay that statement out there, we're going to talk about that truth. We need to make sure we know what we're talking about. What are we even warning each other about? What does it mean to serve something. Well, if you're going, in this context, especially if you're going to serve something, then that means that you have something that that's where your treasure is. 
That's what you value. That's what a high priority is. Your time, your attention, your focus, your energy is all going to be about that which I want to serve, that what I'm elevating, what's taking a top spot and a priority in my life. Um, At its core, everything you think about, everything you put value in, everything you act toward will revolve around that which you're devoted to. Putting that in context with the verse that precedes it, you are devoted to that which you treasure, and that's where your heart will be, with what you treasure. So these verses are simply saying that you can only truly value one type of treasure. You can only be devoted to one type of treasure. All that energy and focus and work can go towards one treasure. It's either God or money. You can't value and devote, and devote yourself to both. Because these, these two treasures kind of have competing forces. It's like a magnet. I think about when I was a kid and I'd play with magnets and you'd try to put them together in a way that they weren't compatible, in a way they weren't designed. And you could kind of force them together and then right before you were about to put them all the way, they'd come off center, right? Because those force fields worked against each other and you could not put them together in an unnatural way. It didn't work to go together backwards. So you can't force them together if they're not compatible. It's a natural order. But the Pharisees taught that you actually could. They said, you know what? God and money, hand in hand. In fact, if you see somebody with lots of wealth and lots of money, clearly God was pleased with them. He was blessing with them with wealth. Consequently, if you saw somebody who didn't seem to have a lot of wealth, then they must have done something wrong. God was upset. They had sin in their life because if you were poor and didn't have finances, God was obviously not pleased, was not with you. Well, as Jesus so often did, he told them, you guys have got it exactly backwards. You can't have two types of treasures. You can't aim your heart towards two types of masters. And you can't be devoted to competing forces. And money is not a treasure that we should set our hearts toward. So kids, this is a family Sunday. I was thinking about what does this look like in the lives of kids? You know, I only had to think back a couple of decades myself. So what are kids devoted to? Obviously, you can think about the, just the, the big generic toys, right? Toys that you see at friends' house, toys that you see advertised on TV. As you get a little bit older, then it starts to think about video games. You want to play the game that so-and-so has, and your parents won't let you because it's too violent or because they, they just don't want you spending money to buy that game. You know, we're always wanting something. We're always looking to value and elevate something. Because this doesn't just start when you're an adult. It's not like you become an adult and instantly you start valuing money and all that money can buy. As adults, it just gets a little bit more complicated and a little bit more expensive. <laughs> but, you know, as you're a kid and you're going through those, those teenage years, then maybe it starts thinking more about clothes, about the type of car you want to drive, even working at the right place in town. It's the new place. Everybody will think it's cool that I work there. We always want to elevate something else and, and center our heart towards something else. As adults... Oftentimes, then we start sacrificing time with family, friends, because we want to accumulate finances and all that comes with it. And some adults can recite way more about their stock portfolio. They know way more about what's, what their net worth looks like than they know about God's Word and what it says. And if that's the case, if that describes you, well, Jesus would tell us and tell you that you have made your choice of what you value most, and that's the wrong one. God is a better choice. Not only are we commanded, actually, to make that choice, it's the only truly satisfying choice that we can make. So not only will his treasure never rust or be eaten by moths, be stolen, be destroyed, his treasure is the only truly satisfying one that we can, that we can choose to, to follow and to value. 
So I'd like to give you one warning and one admonition from other parts of Scripture, other writings on the Bible on this topic. The warning was given by Paul to Timothy when he wrote Timothy a letter, and then the admonition is from Hebrews. So first, let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 9. Paul says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So listen to the words that Paul uses in that warning. These are not subtle words, right? These aren't weak words. He says, trap, foolish, harmful, plunge, ruin, destruction, and pierced. Those are all very vivid and graphic words. Uh, We really shouldn't need much more guidance and warning than that, just those words alone. And remember how we started the verse? Those who want to get rich will experience all those painful words. So the next, how about the admonition? Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I love this verse. It's very clear. You know, there's some verses that you read and you have to think, what is the context here? And you have to back up and read what's before and after it. Maybe grab, grab a commentary and do some deep digging to figure out what is, what is really being said in this verse. Not this one. Pretty clear. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. I also think as a kid, I wore my parents out asking them, Why? They'd say, do something. Why? We're going to do this. Why? Like, I wanted to know why for everything. Um, I just wanted to know. And what do parents say sometimes? They say, because I said so. Like, I don't have time for this. Just do it. Because I said so. And you know what? Parents can do that sometimes, and so can God. He's God. If he gives you a command, we should probably do it. But here, he actually tells us the why. It's great. He says, keep your lives free from love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Can money say that? Can your 401k, can your bank account say, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Um, As a financial advisor, I can tell you the answer to that is no, it cannot. You know, I think about, I love the commercials that you see, some of these that you see on gold, where it says, buy gold, it's never been worth nothing. What? Okay, that's, that's, that's a great rationale right there. By me, I've never been worth zero. Like, okay, um, that's where I want to put my, my trust. They don't point out that it can still lose half its value, that it can fluctuate wildly in price, and that you have no idea what it's actually going to be worth tomorrow, but you should buy gold because they said so. Well, God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. That is something worth being devoted to. See, Jesus is valuable because of who he is. Money and wealth only have value that we ascribe to it or that we perceive that it's worth. Think about what we, most of us live our lives on. We use little pieces of plastic, right? Debit cards from the bank or credit cards you know, from the credit card company. And those are pieces of plastic. Like, what are they worth? If you lose your debit card or your credit card, you call up the company and say, hey, I lost my card. They say, great, we'll send you another one. How many do you want? Two, three, six, ten, whatever. They, they have no value. It's a piece of plastic that we swipe or that we put in this little machine. No value. But yet, we assign a lot of value to it. And then dollar bills. What, dollar bills are what? Little piece of paper, right? It's got pretty, I mean, pretty cool intricate drawings on there. But The dollar bills themselves are worth nothing. We have given it perceived value, and we treat it with value, but, I mean, you know, you all seen people light a dollar bill 
on fire and it's gone and you lose a dollar. You know, we have assigned value to it. But there is no intrinsic value. Even gold. Gold is a natural resource. We didn't make it up. It's in the earth. Limited amount of it. But gold itself also really has no value in and of itself. Somebody has to be willing to trade something for it. That's why before Y2K or before the world's supposed to end every few years and when some, you know, we get freaked out and we think, I'm going to go buy gold and it's, you know, wait for the end of the world. And I always think, why? Like, are we going to you know, shave it down and use it for toothpicks? Like, what are you going to do with it? it? Unless someone is going to trade you something for it, like food or water or some, you know, some product, again, it has no value in and of itself. These are things that we assign value to And as Jesus said, they can fade, they can rust, they can be stolen. Our salvation, our relationship with Christ, there is intrinsic value there that is secure and is never going away, can't be stolen, can't be lost, can't be taken away. It will never fluctuate. Christ is secure. Our relationship with Christ is secure as believers. So if God and God alone has true intrinsic value, then that means that God alone is worth being devoted to. Back to our verse here. He is worth serving. But this isn't just meant to be kind of theoretical where we, okay, that makes sense. I can see how that works. There's a practical way of serving God. So how do we practically serve him? How are we devoted to him in life? Well, 1 Timothy 6, where we just were, Paul just gave that warning about, you know, those who want to be rich fall into traps and all those terrible things. A few verses later, he gives us a perfect roadmap. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure, heard that word a lot, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So what do we see here? How do we serve God in money? Well, first, he says, hope in God. Don't hope in wealth. Hope in God. Let him and his word encourage you. Wealth's not going to do it. Here today, gone tomorrow. Second, enjoy God and his provisions. Yes, enjoy, right? Sometimes as Christians, we're like, uh, am I supposed to be joyful or not really happy, right? But he says here, just enjoy God. Enjoy him and his provisions. As we are devoted to him, enjoy him. Practice an attitude of gratitude for all that he has given us in life and what he puts in our lives. Third, be others-focused. This isn't limited to finances. It's about the whole body. It's about our deeds. We are to be rich, not in decimals, but in deeds. And then fourth, participate in the kingdom work of sharing and giving. You see that referenced here. And actually, that's such a key piece. We're going to expand on that in just a minute. So participate in the kingdom work of sharing and giving. And then fifth, have an eternal perspective. Store up treasure in heaven, not on earth. That, to have that mindset continually, that does take the long view, not just the here and now, but what I see on TV and what I want to accumulate this Christmas season. No, have the eternal perspective to store up treasure in heaven. And I can tell you unequivocally, that the clients that I work with who practice this, who, who kind of live this, this is their, their foundation in life, 
so much more of a joy. I'll call them for something or I'm, I need to touch base or ask a question or follow up on something. And people who live this out, I hang up the phone like, man, I'm so glad I called them today because they're not, they're not depressed. They're not bitter. They're not being whipped back and forth by every wave you know, of the sea. They're not twisted, always angry or depressed because they're serving the correct master and they have their foundation secure in him, not in their finances. So I'd like to try to piece all this together and tell you what really has stood out to me about this area of stewardship and finances over 25 years of practicing and working with people as a financial advisor. I have a, just a collection of nine financial truisms here. No particular order, just things that as I've seen lives lived out and as I've observed God's word, what is some real truth here that we can take and work with on a daily basis? First, whoever loves money never has money enough. That's straight out of Solomon's mouth in Ecclesiastes. And then the follow-up verse says, whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. How true is that? If you love money and if all you're seeking is wealth, how much is enough? Well, it's never quite enough, right? I always need just a little bit more. Then I'll, then I'll feel like it's enough. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be happy. Well, according to Solomon, you won't be. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Second, comparison destroys contentment. Comparison destroys contentment. This is true in all, all aspects of life. It's definitely true in money and what it can buy, right? If I start comparing my house, I compare my benefits package at work, I compare the car, the neighbor's vacation, you know, what I see posted online, start comparing physical appearance. It's never, it's never enough, and it's, it's always going to destroy contentment. You can be happy with where you are, and then you start looking, and like, yeah, they do have that, and yeah, why does so-and-so do this? I have that. Comparison destroys contentment. Third, we are meant to be conduits, not cul-de-sacs, of God's resources and grace. That's so good. Um, that didn't originate with me, but I've heard that, and I have I've held on to that for years. God doesn't bless us so we can build bigger and better barns, so we can go to this city or that city and carry on business here or there without ever consulting him. No, he who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with much because we are meant to be conduits. Things pass through us. Maybe we actually magnify them and make them bigger and pass them on, but we don't just gather it in our ever-increasing barn in our own little cul-de-sac. That's not how it's supposed to work. Fourth, seek financial balance. I think it takes real maturity to really desire and want what this proverb says. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, it may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So here we have both ends of the spectrum, right? The poor, who if you're so poor, you might take matters into your own hands, do something illegal, steal, dishonor God. If you're way over here on this other end of abundance, you might start thinking, man, Look what all I've accomplished. Look at these bigger barns I need to build because I'm so brilliant and I accomplish all this stuff. This, this prayer, this proverb of balance is saying, Lord, please don't put me out any either place. Just give me what I need for my daily bread. I want to honor you. Both ends of the spectrum might cause me to dishonor you. I seek balance to honor you. Number five, our default mode, especially in America today, our default mode will lead us to save, accumulate, and spend too much. It just will. If we go in the stream and we're going with traffic, just moving right along, 
this, this culture today will lead us to get towards the end of life and we will find out, wow, I saved more than I needed. I could have been more generous. I accumulated more stuff that now I have to build bigger things to hold on to this stuff that I've accumulated. And there could be good reasons, right? Like it, we want to take care of ourselves so we're not a burden on our kids. But all this, back to that balance though, we have to have balance or we are going to get towards the end of life and look like, it. man, I could have done so much more during life, use this to further God's kingdom. So our default mode will lead us to save, accumulate, and spend too much. We have to fight the current of our day. Number six, a fool and his money are soon parted. So true. Whether it is storing up the right kind of treasure or whether it's heeding Proverbs advice on seeking to be wise, there is much to be gained from wisdom over folly. I think about the stats on the lottery. How many people win the lottery and then three years later they're broke? <laughs> you know, it's like uh, money easily come is easily gone. So listen to counsel, be patient, use self-control. Money, fool and his money are soon parted. Number seven, the borrower is slave to the lender. Just that classic verse on debt, right? The borrower is slave to the lender. You've probably heard it said, that especially here at Christmas, people are going to spend money they don't have, to buy things that other people don't need and to give it to people who they don't even like, right? That's the American way. (laughs) And that might be an exaggeration, although probably not in all cases, but don't put Christmas on a credit card. If you can't afford it, don't buy it. It's hard to get started in life and to get started in your career without some debt for a car or a house. Yes, but try to minimize debt because that's what this says. The borrower is slave to the lender. So if you put Christmas on a credit card, you will be a slave to Visa or MasterCard and to all that stuff that you just bought that you couldn't afford. Number eight, inheritances are biblical. I put this in here because I think, again, as Christians, a lot of times we kind of feel this tension of, oh, if I have an inheritance, does that mean that I saved up too much stuff? I just accumulated too much that you just talked about. Is it bad to want to pass money on to our kids or even to our grandkids? Well, according to Proverbs 13, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. But a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So sometimes we can feel guilty if we do save and accumulate. But I think coming back to this, this idea of where's your heart? Where's your master? What's the purpose? Wanting to be a blessing to your family and wanting to be a blessing to kids or grandkids, in and of itself, that is not a bad thing. Inheritances are biblical. Last, number nine, and this is really kind of the capstone to everything we've been talking about. Giving is the antidote to greed. Giving is the antidote to greed because so much of our relationship with finances can be tempered and trained with the discipline of giving. There is a discipline there. I'm going to end with a strong exhortation from a John Piper sermon back in 1982. I first read this about 20 years ago, and it has stuck with me, and I've referenced it time and time again. So this quote... It's from a sermon almost 40 years ago. He says this, The best way that I know how to capture the spirit of New Testament generosity is simply to say, the issue is not how much must I give, but how much dare I keep. Not shall I tithe, but how much of the money that I hold and trust for Christ can I take for my private use? The financial issue in the church today is not tithing, but exorbitance of lifestyle. The question is not, can I afford to tithe, but can I justify the lifestyle that consumes 90% of my income? 
And behind that is the question, do I love to use God's money to spread justice and mercy and hope in the world? Or do I prefer to embezzle his money to purchase more and more personal comfort? Ouch, Merry Christmas. Uh, Those are some tough words, right? I don't think those words were there for us to actually take every single one concretely to make us stop and think. If we're walking in or out of here and we drop a few dollars in the giving box, if we hop online at CCB and do a few dollars, or even if we actually set up the 10% tithe and think, well done, 10%, check, got that box checked. And actually, latest numbers I saw, only about 2% of Christians actually even do tithe. But that's not the point. The point is to back up and look at where is your heart? Who are you serving? What really is important to you? Are you taking God in his word? Are you exercising faith? Are you giving above and beyond and joyfully to him? That's what I believe the the discipline of giving is all about. So each of us needs to ask, who is our master? Is it God or is it money? There can only be one. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. It's very clear. (laughs) You have been very clear on this topic of finances and money and our hearts, what you are calling us to, what you and you alone are worthy of, Lord. And if there's somebody here who doesn't know you as as their master, who has not given their life to you, would you prick their heart? Don't let them even walk out these doors or turn off their monitor when we're done without stopping and doing business with you and coming before you and admitting that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. And many of us already have a relationship with you, but maybe we aren't really following your words, your practical words of living and giving for your glory, Lord, of wanting to serve you over finances. So again, would you take your word, of which there are many that deal with this topic, and just Draw our hearts to you so that we would serve you and value you above all else, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, I've asked Steve Smith if he would come and share. He's got a great testimony on what stewardship and living a life of financial wisdom looks like. Steve and his wife, Kathy, have been members at Fellowship for like 53 years, something like that. It's teasing. So, Steve, would you share this real quick? With you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And um, I can't think of a better individual who works in finances and works in wealth management every day to come and talk to us about God's principles and God's word. Thank you, Brian. In 1971, after dating for a few months, I asked Kathy to marry me, and I was scared to death to ask her parents, especially her father, for her hand in marriage. And he told me two things. He said, one, you're marrying a stubborn girl. She's not here because she went, she was here early in the service, but she, she, not, she didn't leave because I said that earlier. But the second thing he told us was, or told me, that I want you to go to church and I want you to give 10% to God. Because of the great dividends. I said, sure, I'll do whatever you want to do. Just let me, let me marry her. So we were married and spent our first few years of marriage at another church, at First United Methodist. 
And we had a missionary couple come and meet with us one evening in our home. And a few weeks before that, I had won a pair of size 10, my size, Mizuno running shoes because I was a runner. Not because I was fast, but because they drew my name out of a hat. Well, that night, in talking to the missionary, John, he said, I'm a runner too. I said, oh, great. I said, how's your running going? Well, I haven't run very much lately because I don't really have the money to buy another pair of shoes. I said, really? I said, what size do you wear? He goes, 10. Oh, boy. So through that meal, God was working on me. And I'd never won anything ever, ever in my life. And so I decided at the end of the meal to go back, get the shoes out of my closet, look at them, kiss them goodbye, and give them to John as an act of sacrificial giving. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I just knew he needed them more than I did. Over the next few years of our marriage, we just weren't making that progress in reaching our goals as the stewards that God wanted us to be. He continued to bless us, but we just weren't moving forward like we should. So after joining Fellowship Bible Church, we took the Dave Ramsey class on finances. Through God's word, he taught us about sacrificial giving. He taught us about cheerful giving. He taught us about laying out our fleece and let God know what our desires are and how he answers us either by yes or no. And he taught us so much that we really, what we were experiencing was a life of living through faith. That's what it's all about. Living through faith, letting him be in charge, realizing that Everything we have is his. You hear that over and over and over. But it's true. He'll take it away in a heartbeat. He'll provide you beyond your understanding. And what we discovered, God didn't bless us with dollars. Sometimes he did. And I can't tell you where they came from, but he did. But he blessed us with a church family. He blessed us with wonderful kids and grandkids, and they keep coming. And he blessed us with great neighbors until they move. And he blessed us with um, Fellowship Life Group. And it just goes on and on and on, sometimes good health. But he continues to bless us because we live a life of faith. And so through this whole period of time that we try to be the kind of stewards he wants us to be, he's taught us to be content. Just as Brian said, we've learned to be content and the things that we thought were important are not important anymore. And so our hope and prayer for you is that you will live a life through faith, that you will live a life in which you can experience his grace, God's goodness, God's protection, God's wisdom, and that you will see him alive in your life every day, day in and day out. Thank you.